And now, an Envision Financial podcast with Luke Smith on Canberra's 2CC. It's time to talk money and to uh, give us all the good oil from Envision Financial. Luke Smith, good afternoon. Mate, uh, good afternoon. How are we? Very well, thank you. And I see once again you've brought oh. a bodyguard. Oh. Are you feeling threatened? Do you know what? I've brought the scariest bloke in Canberra with me. <laughs> um, no, look, it's great. We, um, we've got Kellen for this week and next week because we're doing a, 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 a flow-on sort of chat about today why you need a will. And it's a really common thing for us. A lot of people come in as part of our discovery, we'll have that conversation. Have you got one? Oh, yes or no. Or the one I normally get, oh, I've been meaning to do that since mm. the kids were born. Yeah. Oh, how old are your kids? They're 40. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, it's 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 where we can engage third parties like Kellen and some of the other guests that we've had. Um, and this is really his wheelhouse. And I like the way that people come back to me with the feedback that he spoke in English he wasn't very lawyerish, and he made me think about some stuff that I've never considered. And today's really just about maybe dispelling some myths, touching on some key points, and making sure that people understand the importance of something that some people don't really like talking about, but at the end of the day, we're all going to die at some point, so we might as well be prepared and have a few things jotted down. So it's it's great to have him in here today. Indeed. So, Kellen, thanks very much for joining us today. This is um, obviously a new and novel experience for you, but don't worry, we're not going to eat you. Well, that's good to hear. I'm not here to be eaten. I have got my will in order should that occur. That's very good to know. Making a will is one of those things that is like it has to be the easiest thing in the world to keep on putting off, isn't it? Well, I think so. It's that confronting idea of your own mortality. And a lot of people understand that there are complexities in estate planning and they may know that they've got a, a blended family or assets in different jurisdictions and things that will give them headaches. And I think a lot of people also have anxiety about seeing a lawyer. They've got all these conceptions about what lawyers do. So it's certainly one of the easiest things that people put off. Yes. Yeah, I don't think it's it's, it's anything that people have on their top five things of I'm going to get to. Um, and that's where I think we've been fortunate in adding a lot of value that we can connect people with you know, third parties like Kellen and mortgage brokers and accountants and take that fear of the unknown away. Um, and I often, I often joke, and I probably shouldn't, but I, I say to people regularly, he'll never play front row for the Raiders. Um, and when you meet him, you'll see exactly what I mean. Um, and, and they always come back and go, oh, you were right. Yeah, he, he wouldn't play for the Raiders, would he? But he was really good at that. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the big misconceptions that we get all the time um, that I thought would be worth raising today is, I guess a question or a query pushback is, well, I'll just get one from the post office. So I guess to sort of demystify this one, can we touch on some of the the key problems with that assumption in general? Yeah, we absolutely can, Luke, and I'm really glad that you asked. I hear this from clients all the time as well. Why should I pay a lawyer? Lawyers are expensive. Why can't I just make my own will? One of the really interesting things about wills is that they're a type of deed. There's basically two types of legal documents out there. There's contracts and there's deeds. And deeds follow an area of law that's very niche. And the terms that deeds use have a meaning that's not English. They're Mm -hmm. not written in English. So if you use English to write a will, it may not actually mean what you want it to mean. An example of this, this is the first example I'll give. Let's say you write a will that says, I give my estate half to my son Bob and half to my daughter Sue. And you might have a really clear idea in your mind of what you think that means. That sentence means two totally different things in the ACT in New South Wales. Right. Because with deeds, the words are the tip of the iceberg. 
And there's all this case law, hundreds of years of case law underneath it that actually shapes what they mean. So the first thing is you might be writing something and not actually know what your will is going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are also lots of terms and conditions that you need to put in wills to make sure that they work well with the legislation. And then I guess the last point that I'd make is a will kit, even if it's a good one, is going to have spaces for you to fill things in yourself, but it's not going to give you any advice. So you could mm. make a will that's legally binding and it could bind you into all kinds of tax problems and into disinheriting people who can challenge your will um, or other things that might cause it to be contested. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point because depending on people's situation, I think it's a, a bit of a misconception again that, oh, this is a simple process. It, it can be for some people. And, you know, again, I'm, that's not my wheelhouse, but most documents people come in and go, oh, if I die, he gets it. And if she dies, I get it. And therefore they want it to go to the kids. And this is where I find from a value perspective, thinking about things that people don't know to ask for. So things like, Uh, incorporating a testamentary trust which can be great for transferring assets to the next generation and there's protection benefits there's tax benefits but if mum and dad mr and mrs smith don't know to ask for those sorts of things some people don't actually offer them up and you know that's another one where a testamentary trust needs to be written into a will is that right because if it's not there then it's like trying to get the trying to get the flour out of the cake after you've cooked it is that a yeah that's a really good way of putting it luke if testamentary trusts give you some really unique tax advantages Mm. for the person inheriting and some great options for asset protection but in order to get those things the trustee's got to be in the will Mm. if you don't write it in the will then the person can never have that benefit and you're entirely right the number of people I talk to about testamentary trusts who say they've never heard that term before, mm. I think the majority of people just don't know about them. Yeah, look, it's one we raise from a, from an asset transfer perspective and, and an income distribution perspective um, that when asked, a lot of parents go, well, I'd really like to help my kids either protect them from themselves or from a loved one or a, a third party. Yes, I better get one. Or they often say, I have an enduring power of attorney inside my will which is a bit like saying I have an orange inside a banana. So we'll, we'll, touch, on the, we'll touch on the enduring powers of attorney next week. But yeah. I think what about where, they hold, where people hold assets in different locations? So you live in Canberra, you might have a rental property in Queanbeyan and you hold the mandatory investment property in Queensland. What are some of the things people need to think about with their will with different jurisdictions? Yeah, well, the first thing they've got to consider is that those different items of real estate are going to be subject to different rules. So... Each state and territory has its own rules about things like stamp duty. A really good example of this is if you want a will in the ACT to be able to deal with property in the ACT and allow people to transfer it to beneficiaries, you've got to have a clause in there called a power to appropriate. Um, Other terms and other states and territories may not have that same requirement, but in order to get things across the line with ACT revenue and land titles here, your will that's effective in the ACT has to have that power. And if you made it up in Queensland and the person who made it up in Queensland didn't know about the rules in the ACT, then it may not do the things you need it to do. And I think there's a great example of assuming that they're all the same and assuming that your situation isn't complicated when actual fact, from a legal perspective, people may be carrying a lot more complexity than they realise whilst looking at their asset position or their, their general, their overall position and not knowing 
what's involved. I think one of the benefits of getting advice is, you know, a wheel kit's never going to throw up the options and the considerations. Or, mm. you know, the one we get all the time, oh, I've had enough of this child, I'm going to I'm gonna leave them out. Now, there are, there are implications and things to consider on that front too, aren't there? Absolutely there are. So this is another state-based thing. And so a good lawyer will be able to tell you which rules are going to apply to you based on where your assets are, where you're living, where your kids are. Um, but in most states and territories, if you don't adequately provide for a child in your will, well, then they can contest it. Right. And there's this whole question there, well, what is adequate provision? You know, in some circumstances, adequate provision is no dollars. If you've got a situation where a child is an adult and they're independent um, and they're, they're, they're totally estranged from you, and there's a reason for that that's got nothing to do with you, everything to do with them, and they've been really awful to you, you might be justified in making no provision. Right. But in a lot of cases, that's not the case. And a will kit's not going to tell you that. Hmm. It's just going to say whatever you write on it. Yep. So one of the misconceptions we often hear is people will say to me, well, I want to leave my, my son Bob out of my will, um, but I don't want him to be able to contest it. So if I give him $10... That means he's got a gift in the will and he can't contest it, right? And, I mean, that's simply not the case. Hmm. Adequate provisions a lot more case by case and a lot more nuanced than that and you really need that advice. I was told that any will can be contested by anybody. The question is not whether or not they can. The question is whether or not they'll succeed. Hmm. <laughs> and look, I think, I think that's a great analogy and I think you may have given me this one or, or, or someone else I was speaking to recently said they'll, they'll think twice about climbing the mountain if you take the ropes away. And I think Kellen's given us some great examples today of some misconceptions and some, some outcomes that you may or may not have considered depending on where you hold assets, where you live, where listed shares are registered. That's another one that can, can, can be a bit of a curveball if you haven't thought about it. And the use of a testamentary trust, which most parents say to me, well, yes, I'd really love to save my kid from themselves or a loved one because 35 is the new 15 when it comes to controlling assets and, and making decisions. So... I guess to put a bow on the importance of the document, what happens if you don't have one? If you don't have a will, then you don't get a say. It's as simple as that, Luke. Mm -hmm. If you don't have a will, then what happens to your assets when you pass away is what is written into the legislation, which right. is slightly different in every state and territory. So if you've got assets in different jurisdictions, it can be a bit of a mess to work out which rules apply to what. But you'll get standard formulas. And those standard formulas will usually say some of your estate goes to your spouse some of your estate goes to your kids. If you've got minor kids, whatever they get, they get when they turn 18. And you don't necessarily get to say who your executor is either. You'll end up with somebody administering right. your estate. Maybe it'll be a next of kin. Maybe it'll be the public trustee. But you won't get to have a say. See, that's huge, Ben. You think about the implications of that for a couple that maybe someone's predeceased their partner and there's money that's come into a will that could be used for paying off a home loan for paying kids' educations. And if by a piece of legislation or the, the default legislation of your area then results in you losing control of the money that you would have otherwise used proceeds for for financial planning strategies, it can have a far more dire impact than I think a lot of people realise when it comes to the, the just not having it yeah. because they just don't have the time. Now, you mentioned the choice of executive executor there. What do you need to keep in mind when you're selecting an executor? Because obviously somebody might be inclined to select a family member, I trust my son or whatever the case might be, but is that always the best choice? Well, quite often it actually is. 
One of the misconceptions is that an executor should be or has to be a professional person like a lawyer or an accountant. But the majority of people will actually choose a next of kin or a close friend rather than a professional. The executor is, at the end of the day, the person responsible for seeing out the distribution of the estate. Technical things, they can delegate. Maybe they delegate probate to a lawyer. Maybe they hire a lawyer to deal with the sale of the assets and the ledgers and the distributions and writing to people and talking to accountants. Maybe they hire a real estate agent to sell the property or a financial advisor to deal with the shares. But what you can't delegate is values and diplomacy. So the most important things to bear in mind are your executor needs to be somebody that you trust. Your executor needs to be someone who will know where your assets are or where to find that information. Your executor needs to be somebody who is diplomatic and can communicate well with your beneficiaries, is organised and can be assumed to take responsibility for making appointments with lawyers and so on. And a layperson is generally quite capable of doing that. And can your executor also be a beneficiary? Yes, they can. And as in all things, just because they can doesn't mean they should be, but often it's a good idea to have an executor who's a beneficiary as well. There's pros and cons. Having an executor who's also a beneficiary means they've got an incentive to deal with the estate in a timely manner. Um, but, you know, depending on what the how the will is worded and who gets what, there may be some biases involved. It's really, you know, different strokes for different folks. Oh, exactly. And I had one question on your very first example that you gave. When you look at a will that you think is going to be very simple and you say, I want half my estate to go to my son, Bob, and half to go to my daughter, Sue. If you write it like that, doesn't that mean that your house, your furniture, your car, your painting on the wall, all these things have to be sold off so that the financial proceeds can be divided up? Otherwise, how do you decide who gets the sofa and who gets the pro-heart painting? Well, it can be a real real mess (laughs) because the only way really of understanding what half of the estate is worth is either to sell it all up or have it all valued. If it's a house, does that mean you have to sell the house or can you just say, oh, no, you're both joint tenants now? You can do either. Okay. And sometimes you want to consider who your executor is because they have that discretion. In a lot of wills, and people are not often aware and informed of what executors can do by default in their jurisdiction, your executor might have the power to say, Bob and Sue get half the house each. They're going to be tenants in common, 50-50. Or, you know, we sell it all up and they get half the money each, even if the house is something that is an investment. That's going to trigger capital gains tax. Mm. Or maybe um, the executor feels more partial to Bob than to Sue, says I'm going to get a valuation done and I'm going to transfer the house to Bob and Sue can get paid out an equivalent amount of money even though Sue might have wanted the house too. So diplomacy is important. And there's a lot of problems when, when, say, one person wants to sell a house and another person wants to keep the house. That can be an issue. So all of these tend to point towards the idea that maybe it's really good to be quite clear in your will about which way you want it to go. Yes, absolutely. And yeah. a, a part of good document hygiene as well is having documents other than the will. I think a mm. lot of people have this conception that estate planning, it's a broader exercise, just means making a will. You, you boil everything down to this one document, maybe it's three or four pages long, um, and in the event that you pass away, that's the plan. It's all of your wishes, it's, it's everybody's responsibilities, all the information that they need, and maybe it's that overthinking it that causes people to put it off for so long. I think part of good estate planning is to have a will as a legal document, but to support it with other things. Mm-hmm. And one of the best things that you can do is to write letters to your executors and beneficiaries 
explaining your reasons for your wishes and perhaps also guiding the people with discretion, like your executor, as to how you want them to exercise it, what you want them to take into account. Indeed. Luke Smith from Envision Financials in the studio and uh, with Luke today from Artisan Legal, it's Kellen Christofferson. We've had a question, gentlemen, from Tony who wants to know this. He says, I'm a single man with no close family, no good friends that live nearby. Who should I use for an executor? Well, it's a good question and Tony's predicament is not a rare one. The first thing that I would say is an executor doesn't necessarily have to live nearby. So if Tony has a friend that he knows and trusts who doesn't live in the same state and territory as he does, it is still generally okay to appoint them and they can deal with lawyers who live locally to Tony. The only rider I'd put on that is having an executor who's based overseas is sometimes problematic, especially from a tax point of view. Mm-hmm. If he really has nobody that he knows and trusts personally, his other options are that he could appoint a professional executor like a lawyer or an accountant or he could appoint the public trustee. And the public trustee, I would think, would be his executor of last resort. Mm-hmm. So why is that? Well, <laughs> I suppose how because... Long, how long have we yeah, got? Look, I mean, the public trustee is a government body. Yep. So it's going to be difficult for Tony to develop any particular rapport with them. Yeah. Um, there are pros and cons between yep. public trustees and other professional executors about fees, and I guess that's something that Tony would have to weigh yeah, up. Yeah, for yep. sure. All right. So what have we missed out, Luke? Well, the only thing, I guess, from a planning perspective that people should be mindful of, and this is another a, a misconception, is, oh, well, I've, I've got a will now, so that includes all of my assets. And I guess we need to point out and make acutely aware that your superannuation does not fall under the direction of your will. Now, we're going to touch in a couple of weeks on binding nominations as a way to direct money out of superannuation to then fall under the will so that we've we've got the money in the right bucket to then have the, the document come in and, and provide the direction. But it's it's another big misconception. Oh, I've, I don't need anything else. I've got a will that includes my super. It doesn't. So make sure you're looking in your, in your fund for your binding nominations um, and we'll touch on those in coming weeks so that we can put a bow on this estate planning process. Fantastic. Okay, so your will covers everything except your superannuation. I think that's a pretty safe assumption to make. You, you cool with that? I'm cool with oh, that. Oh, I'd have one more writer. Things mm-hmm. in joint names. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. that's yeah. a very good question. Well played. So, what's, the, what's the deal there? So jointly owned assets don't go into the will of the first person to die. It's the survivor gets to keep them. Okay. And so one of the things we do for estate planning, particularly with blended families, is we look at how the assets are held. So a lot of people know that both their names are on the title to the house, but they don't know if they're joint or if they're tenants in common. That's also going to be important in relation to shareholdings in companies as well. And, and again, this is just a, a beautiful illustration of you've got to look a little deeper because what you may think is simple from a structural standpoint could actually be far more complicated when he starts looking at these things because of the control, the distribution, the tax implications and the ownership of tenants in common, jointly owned, and, and, and a raft of yeah. other considerations. So basically with the real estate ownership, if it's uh, if it's joint tenants, what that means is that the person who dies passes it on to the other partner automatically, regardless of what the will says. But if it's tenants in common, you actually own literally a mm. half share, and that half share can be distributed by your will to whomever you like. That's exactly right. Yeah. 
it's very hard to sell in the open market half a house as well. So that's again, the trouble. <laughs> comes back to the complexity discussion around making sure you know what you you're trying to achieve. Indeed. So Luke, we've reached that point of the program. Mm-hmm. Where do listeners go to get more yeah. information? So six two six zero four seven four nine. We've got envisionfinancial.com.au on the internet. We've got the podcast, the Strategy Stacker. Luke talks money on Spotify and iTunes, and we've got the YouTube channel, Envision Financial Canberra, where you can subscribe to that and see the show on the iPhone on the couch while you have some 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 drinks on a Friday afternoon. Um, if people want to reach out or get in touch, Kellen, where can they? Where can they reach you, mate? Well, they could reach me on the phone, 61835140, or they could visit our website, artisanlegal.com.au, where they can appoint, make appointments online and they can also find our email contacts. Fantastic. So that's artisanlegal.com.au. And uh, Luke, what are we talking about next week? Yeah, so Kellen, he's coming for a return engagement. We're going to do the estate planning over a three-week period, and he's going to talk next week about enduring powers of attorney and some of the key do's and don'ts when it comes to those as well. Fantastic stuff. Thank you very much, both of you, for coming in. Thanks Thanks for having me. That's Kellen Christofferson from Artisan Legal and Luke Smith from Envision Financial on 2CC.